Welcome to Peer Innovation, the podcast with Leo Batari and me, Randy Cantrell. Building on our previous shows, The Year of the Peer and What Anyone Can Do, we turn our attention to helping business leaders build high-performing teams. We'll talk with a diverse group of thought leaders who will share stories and insights that will help you and your teams achieve new heights. If you believe there is strength in numbers and that meeting the challenges of the future can only be achieved if we do it together, then join us for the conversation. Joining us today is Les Deck. Since 2005, Les has been a Vistage Chair, chairing a group of Chief Executive Officers in Palm Beach County, Florida. Les is an executive coach, works with a full variety of C-level executives, and helps his clients identify and therefore eliminate barriers to growth. We welcome Les to the show. Les Deck, welcome to the show. It's so great uh, to have you here. We've been talking about this for a little while and uh, you know, appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here, Leo. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed all my conversations with you and having you come to my group. Uh, and uh, so uh, I just, I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to talk with you uh, on a podcast. Well, great. You know, one of the things that, uh, and I feel like the timing uh, of this is perfect, basically, because there's so much in flux right now. And, um, but before we get into some of the questions I have, I'd love for you just maybe, and I know, um, you know, Randy did the intro, of course, but um, anything you want to talk about with regard to your coaching business or your work as a Vistage chair, just so people, you know, in the audience um, get a chance to know you a little bit and what you care about, what you're about. Okay. Well, I've been uh, associated with the Vistage organization for more than 20 years. Um, 16 years as a chair here in Florida. And I was a member for uh, five years before that when I was uh, running a company in Chicago as uh, chief operating officer. Um, so that's a, a long-term um, set of experience. Uh, I've run as many as four groups. Um, that isn't what I do now. I have one really successful CE group. Um, some of those members have been in my organization for 15 years, others about 10, and then a whole variety of uh, folks. Um, I try to get a variety of age age groupings in my uh, uh, organization. And uh, uh, I think when you came out to see us uh, a while back, you saw that there were some young people as well as some folks who were near the end of their uh, entrepreneurial career. So I enjoy doing that a lot. Um, I enjoy the one-to-ones as much as I do the uh, the meetings. And um, as you know, as uh, I told you, and Randy reiterated, I'm an executive coach as well. And this is probably an offshoot of my Vistage work. Um, uh, my interest in coaching is uh, really strong. Uh, and my style is a little bit different. My, my business model is that I coach entire C-suite teams, CEO, CFO, COO, um, everybody with a, a top level title. I coach them individually, but I bring them together uh, to do strategy. So I'm with them when they plan their strategy. Uh, I have my, my own strategy planning um, methodology that I use. It's called the, the A-game strategy. And the reason for that is all the words start with A. Assessment, alignment, action, assignment, accountability, and adjustment. Uh, and uh, so works out neat and every team wants to be the uh, um, bring their a game and be the uh, uh, team working with an a game strategy anyway 
So, you know, I, I love the idea that you have adopted this business model where you're not just coaching the CFO or just coaching a CFO, but you are coaching the C-suite, both as individuals and as a, and as a team, really. And tell us how that kind of came about for you in terms of why you found that particularly effective other than, I mean, I would imagine you really get to know an organization well when you start seeing it through all of those various lenses. Well, that's certainly true. And how it came about, Leo, um, it wasn't as if it was my strategy and I worked it out and everything happened, um, ABCD puppy. It was uh, probably more likely that uh, um, a CEO said to me, can you coach my uh, CFO? Can you coach my sales manager, et cetera? Uh, and I began to do that. <clears throat> And then the, all of the methodology and all of the theory around it worked itself out. Um, but you're absolutely right about uh, the perspective that you gain as someone who's doing that. Um, I see everything um, because I, I'm, a, I'm a fearless question asker. And surprisingly, people will uh, respond to, to questions provided there's trust there. Uh, and so I know everything about everybody. I know from the organizational point of view, the pinch points, uh, the people who uh, have a little bit of trouble with each other, uh, the people, I know their fears and I know their dreams uh, and uh, um, I know when they need to vent because they do. Mm, uh, sure. Uh, and, um, and so it gives me a perspective that nobody else has in the organization that makes it possible to just move things very carefully and slowly around. Have you considered this? Um, are you talking with uh, this person about that? Um, and why wouldn't you bring that directly up uh, in uh, front of the organization? Those things, those little things often move um, an entire team to a place that they wouldn't be. Um, so I, I know things about um, the organization that the CEO doesn't, probably a lot of things that the CEO doesn't. I know um, each member of the team better probably than anybody else does because I, um, the initial uh, engagement is probably six months or a year in some cases. And then it just goes on and on because uh, people become accustomed to uh, coaching and don't want to leave it. Um, well, I can see where when you're really intentional about it, how well you can get to know those players uh, and how important that is. But, you know, and I, I want to get into some other stuff in a little bit, but I am fascinated by the cross-functional work team because, you know, Harvard Business Review refers to about 70% of cross-functional work teams as dysfunctional work teams. And part of, um, you know, part of one of the things, and I'd love to get your uh, view on this, I guess from my perspective, I think ideally I would love it if a cross-functional work team got together um, and when they met, that they truly had their enterprise hats on, that they weren't the king of marketing or the queen of finance or head of HR or something like that, but they, they, they see the world through that expertise, no question about it, and through that experience and then that lens. But at the same time, to be trusted in that team, to be thinking and making decisions that are about the entire enterprise, not about protecting my budget, protecting my people, protecting my program. It, first of all, 
is have you seen that is it realistic and and if it is how do you go about getting there how do you gain that kind of um you know buy-in to do truly what's right for the enterprise and and that everyone around the table can trust one another to that end well you just said the proper word trust uh and uh, of course i see that uh, uh, initially when i began working with teams uh, that's evident there's some reason that they called me in in the first place mm-hmm. things probably aren't going so terribly well um and so i i use a program uh that uh, is a patrick lencioni um wiley publishing company partnership it's called the five behaviors of a conscientious team uh and it starts with trust actually the fundamental building block of uh, human relationships whether they're business relationships or interpersonal in any other way friends whatever if you don't trust each other um and in this case trust means vulnerability yes and so uh, i spend a couple of days with them or even more if it's required uh and there are a lot of exercises around this but you, they learn to trust each other at a vulnerable level which means then they're able to say i screwed this up i don't know enough about that can you help me with this that's that's trust it's not just uh, trust yes i trust him or i trust yep. you um and then they have to learn uh conflict resolution because there is conflict and there's going to be they have to learn to make it productive conflict in other words to pull all the um personal stuff um uh, out of it whatever happened before is in the past and now we're talking about uh, uh how to make things better for the company so we can go that distance all the way over to a, um the center of a conflict continuum where if you took two steps uh over in the other direction uh you would be a, as patrick lencioni says headed toward hell <laughs> things would fall apart uh but you can be there for an instant and then step back and that's that sweet spot where you're sharing everything you need to share but not getting personal is a place where productive conflict happens so they they need to learn that and most teams that i uh begin to deal with don't know that mm. um they're careful so that nothing gets out of hand and therefore you know lots of things that should be shared or not shared then there's the whole commitment uh, piece of it um and the teaching there that's a uh, is challenging is uh, that you can agree with things that you don't totally buy into for the good of the team um uh, and so they have to learn that um and then there's a whole new meaning for accountability accountability is a loaded word as we have known it it means that somebody has the power to hold you accountable which means they have maybe the power to hurt you um to take your job away from you and so accountability has been scary for someone who's been yeah. being held accountable and it's really scary for someone whose responsibility it is to hold accountable in that way um but uh, what i teach about accountability is that uh, the only accountability that makes any sense and brings a team forward is peer to peer accountability wait for the boss probably not going to happen um boss is awfully busy uh and may not want to hold people accountable so much anyway but the team and its functioning 
depends upon being able to go to another member of the team and say, you committed that uh, this would happen. Um, you know, I need this to do my share of it. I don't see that happening. What's up with that? Um, without the whole deal becoming uh, personal, sure. without uh, animosity. Um, and the final part of it is uh, that the team is working, if they're working properly and as a, a conscientious team on shared results. And each yep. other piece of it, you know, uh, I also teach people uh, in the C-suite that when your title starts with C, it means um, you're the proactive one in that subject matter. You've got to bring it because uh, they hired you because you're expert in that area. So you've got to bring that and bring it to bear on the, um, on the team result, not to defend it as, um, as one would do in defending turf or defending budget or defending your people. Um, but to understand that if the team doesn't uh, succeed together, it won't succeed as a team. And, and therefore the results have to be not what's best for me, um, not what will advance my career, what's best for the team. Yeah. Well, the model you shared is, is a bit of, you know, five dysfunctions of a team turned to the positive and, you know, um, you know, and, and, and a good model, certainly. Um, you can definitely see, you know, how that can make such a big difference and how those are, it is the pyramid. They are building blocks, um, certainly. Um, so you see cross-functional work teams and then you see the teams um, that report into them and you think about what's happened in the past year. What, what have you seen both positive and negative with regard to teams and how they've been challenged and how they've responded? Well, it's often very difficult. Um, has been very difficult for the year to get people together uh, in the same sense that uh, they could if there wasn't a COVID. Um, and even given that, I think uh, I've seen teams do a surprisingly good job of it. Um, um, maybe it's that uh, people actually um, are able to focus and concentrate on um, the subject at hand. Uh, a Zoom meeting, you know, isn't a, a, a water cooler meeting. A Zoom meeting isn't, mm. uh, let's get together in the conference room and kick this around. A Zoom meeting has a subject um, and a leader, and usually it goes someplace. Uh, and then you got work to do, so you Zoom meeting ends, and then nobody's going to walk in your office and interrupt you. So in some ways, I think productivity has been enhanced. And uh, I think that's been at the cost of uh, um, worker relationship, however, and serendipity um, uh, and uh, one idea building on another. Because I think that happens, I don't know, more naturally, uh, where you can walk into the office, sit down and say, I'm really vexed about this, or mm. can you help me think through right. this problem, which you're not likely to do on Zoom. Yeah, no, I can see that where you, you certainly lose the spontaneity. I, I do think in some cases, though, I have seen relationships actually become strengthened by pulling people out of the office, largely because people have gotten a window into each other's homes and each other's lives and have started to know them a little, a little differently than just a coworker who went to a central location. Um, but yeah, there's no question that, um, you know, it's challenging. And certainly a lot of people right now are really, you know, 
Now, some have gotten really used to this idea of no commute and not, <laughs> not going into the office and 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 all that uh, for sure. But I think most people I talked to were, were like, you know, I would like to go in one or two days a week. But I also think that we've proven ourselves that we can be productive. We can get things done. And oftentimes, because of the type of work I do, I'm not in a lot of meetings. I don't engage with a lot of people in many um, cases throughout the course of a day. So when I need to, I want to come in and be able to do that. And that's really beneficial. But at the same time, uh, if I can do my work from home, and I not only can be productive from here, but maybe arguably more productive, um, then that's okay, too. Certainly it is. I have a client um, who had, uh, you know, a headquarters office full of people, all in cubicles up and down the hall and that cube farm in the center where everybody uh, hangs out behind the uh, upholstered walls. Uh, and he took the opportunity when people went home uh, to turn that into a support center. Uh, there are people who need to be in the office mm. in his business and people who don't. Um, you have to have a customer service core. Uh, they have to have access to their tools. And he made them a better space, a safer space. Um, obviously, the um, computer server uh, and everything that goes with the network is there and has to have people to take care of that. But for the most part, those people who are able to work from home uh, in just the way you described, um, most of them are going to stay at home. Um, th there are people that have to come in, but most of them are going to stay at home. And he's going to stay at home. <laughs> uh, uh, except the, the what was the headquarters office been turned into a support center and it has small meeting rooms where you yep. and you can bring in uh, two or three other associates, sit down and uh, all meet at the support center and do what you need to do. There are large conference rooms so that you can bring a client in. Um, and um, there's uh, now a portion of it that wasn't before is a training room and a portion of it that wasn't before is a, um, a video studio. Um, and so then, and there are two. There are two or three rooms where you can do your executive work if you need to. Uh, he doesn't even have an office there now. So, given that, and with the CEOs that you connect with, that this is not something most CEOs would have chosen for themselves had they not been forced into it. Um, yeah. So here they are, in the end, on a dime, they've got to pivot, and now all of a sudden, you've got all these people in many respects working from home and having to completely adjust how they did this. What do you, th are you, th do you think that this experiment, if you will, forced as it was, <laughs> um, that they were surprised by some of the results? And also what do you think CEOs learned from this experience for having to go through this pandemic about their people, about their business, about all of that? Yeah, um, it certainly was a, a surprise to everybody, and, and you're right, they wouldn't have chosen it. Um, the uh, boomer owner of a $50 million construction company um, wants everybody historically sitting in front of him or out there where he can go touch them. Uh, suddenly, everybody was at home, and he couldn't touch anyone. Um, and um, what, has, what they learned from that is that you don't have to watch people what you really need to do is to um, um, set expectations with people um, and um, they're probably going to do their work. And 
people enjoy flexibility. Um, and I don't know that there's been a lot of uh, little league happening while COVID was going on, but they now have the flexibility that they can go pick up the kids at the center or, or at school or whatever and bring them back uh, or go to a doctor's appointment without asking. Uh, and I think that's enhanced productivity and really surprised uh, most business owners. There are some situations where it seems to have not, mm. um, where, um, uh, and one of those tasks is, um, um, is quoting construction jobs. And I deal with a number of those um, companies and uh, uh, the people who do the estimating really have to have a lot of tools at their beck and call. And um, it's just easier for them to work in a place where everything is there. The CAD room is over here. The, uh, all of the um, historic resources, et cetera, are over here. Not, that's not all easily shared uh, online. Uh, and so their productivity is better when they're in the office. And people discovered that as well. Um, I, I think what the business owner discovered is that they could get along um, being in their own home and setting up an office or else um, being the only one in the office where they could get their work done and um, deal with people online. Uh, I think that was a surprise to most of them. Hmm. I would also say that, uh, well, it's, uh, well, I know of some problems it's solved with respect to space. Um, those people who will be left at home now won't have to have corporate space to go to. So there's a savings there. And uh, during the, uh, uh, the run up to COVID here, there was, there were places where uh, people were in, you know, otherwise, computer closets or storage closets that suddenly had six workstations in them. That can't happen anymore. That's done. Uh, and so I think that's an improvement in the workspace. Um, and uh, well, those are just some of the things that I've noticed about it. Many of them want uh, uh, people to come back. Many of them really want people to come back for the, um, the, the teaming aspects of it. And some of those same ones don't want to go back themselves. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> I think that augurs well to, uh, to a middle management team um, and to, to having middle management people that uh, don't need to be asking the boss all the time. Yeah, I would think that one of the tricky things, there's a lot of organizations, you know, I've talked about this, that are just by the nature, even when everyone's in the office all the time, they're still somehow incredibly siloed. And it only exacerbates the problem now when you've got everyone at home and they have even less of a window into what's happening in the rest of the, the company. Um, what can companies be doing, you know, not only if they remain, you know, largely at home and continue kind of with this way of working, but even when they go back to the office now, should we be thinking about how we finally maybe attack this notion of um, silos and companies um, a little more aggressively going forward? Well, yes, I think so. But I'm a team coach and I would I would think so. Yeah. Um, because I think that uh, um, you can't have a team if everybody's in a silo. It just won't work. Um, 
Uh, I think we ha- we need to attack it in a number of ways. The executive team needs to become a team. And in my experience also, uh, the uh, team one operations team needs to become uh, more of a team. Um, and I think that means uh, a lot more intentionality around um, uh, supporting the mission and the vision with uh, corporate communications, executive level communications. Um, and that shouldn't be just one way. It should, there should be a conduit so that uh, um, opinions and desires and wishes float back. Uh, if I have learned anything in this, uh, this um, whole thing, it's that we're going to do better if we invite people into a dream where they can actually um, enhance and achieve their own dreams, then we will be giving people tasks to do. Mm. Certainly. You know, one of the things I'd like to ask you about too, um, the Edelman Trust Barometer, when they released their results in January, uh, talked about something called information hygiene. You know, the idea that when people get information, they don't often take the time to vet that information in a way that is thorough enough, or they don't know what sources to trust to make sure they vet that information. And so you end up having misinformation spread about all kinds of things. Um, trust in media and government. Um, now, the Edelman Trust Barometer, just for our listeners, some may know what this is, but um, it's been going on for, I believe, 21 years now. Um, in 28 countries across the world, they measure trust, uh, public trust in institutions, uh, business, government, media, and NGOs. Um, actually, right now, uh, business uh, enjoys the highest level of trust, even I believe slightly above uh, NGOs. And of course, media and government are are very much suffering and very much so in the U.S. in terms of trust. So what's starting to happen is that employees in particular are looking for their CEO to step up because at the same time we've had a pandemic, we've had issues around uh, social justice. We've had a very uh, divisive political climate. We have all these things going on. And it's fascinating how, and, and you're seeing more and more now with various issues coming to the table that CEOs, you'll have 400 CEOs signing a letter against this particular thing or for that or something else and wanting to take a stand and actually provide people looking to them for a level of clarity about what's going on in the world, who somebody we can trust. Um, I'm wondering, first of all, how do you feel about that? And I guess, how if, have you talked to any CEOs who've talked about that fact that that is now a bit of a added new role, you know, for them in many respects in terms of their job? Well, I think the place that I've done the most uh, discussion of that has been in my district group. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know how that works. There's uh, <laughs> an issue that comes up and then there's an expansive conversation concerning the issue. And then sometimes I bring things up too. And there were, there's been ample opportunity to bring up uh, social justice. Um, and I have to say that, uh, well, I think people, uh, business owners, most especially CEOs, are growing in this respect. Um, I, I not so sure that uh, their growth and what we're seeing in, in terms of the support of social justice by large companies um, is motivated by anything more than uh, marketing. Um, I know that uh, when um, I talk with my um, Vistage 
members who've been with me for a long time, um, they know, they know that, that, that a change is underway and that they will have to react to it. A little reluctant to take any big steps there. Um, not quite yet believing that it's the province of uh, ordinary business uh, to uh, step up to that. Uh, uh, and, you know, the response um, comes in all kinds of forms. Uh, um, a lot of them now uh, employ a whole variety of uh, people uh, and uh, they've uh, truly stepped out, uh, particularly in Florida, because uh, uh, the talent pool is uh, shallow here uh, and growth is high. And in uh, the construction business, uh, we have a lot of people from outside the country now. And so they have to respect uh, different uh, uh, genet genetic descents uh, and racial um, race, race of all kinds. Uh, and so they know that. They also know that uh, the attitudes of millennials uh, that are they're going to have to hire, they are hiring and will have to continue because that's what's going to be there as boomers retire, um, is that uh, they want to see more jo social justice. They, they want to uh, be working for a company that uh, gives them something to do that uh, is uh, important and supports uh, um, the world and uh, makes the world a better place to live in. So they know uh, it's a little hard for them to get there. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that um, even for those who may not, I'm not going to say 100% believe in it, but who may be more marketing motivated and um, feel it kind of viscerally a part of them, it, it's fascinating sometimes when even if the motivation isn't always ideal, usually the action towards any type of move like that tends to, we, we, we tend to learn along the way, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think that that can be a positive outcome of that, that even though we may not love the motivation for why something is moving forward, I think once it does move forward and we start, you know, learning through that process, we may discover that, wow, this is, this is really more meaningful than I would have imagined going into it. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful of that, that even, um, you know, I mean, the, again, I, I think motivation notwithstanding, if things are, are moving in a good direction uh, in that regard, and that we can provide uh, a mechanism and a, and a form for people to um, gain a fuller understanding uh, of what's going on and why uh, it can make such a difference. Uh, I think that's, that's a good thing. Ultimately. I do too. Uh, and I think that's uh, um, the role of people like us when we're, when we're uh, working with uh, uh, clients and peer groups and uh, every place we function. Absolutely. Les, where can people learn more about you and your work and, um, um, you know, hey, if you're a cross-functional work team and and you need someone to really work with you on that, um, Les is certainly, especially if you're in Florida, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Les would certainly be a terrific resource. But yeah, Les, um, tell us where people can find out more about you and um, uh, we'll take it from there. Okay. 
Well, uh, probably the easiest way to find out a lot about me is to go to my website, which is less at less, excuse me, it's lessdeckconsulting.com. Uh, uh, and you can contact me at less at lessdeckconsulting.com anytime you want. Um, I'd be happy to hear from anyone. That's great. You can call me on my phone. I have uh, one cell phone. Okay. I've gotten rid of everything else. Uh, it's 630-697-0739. I still have my uh, suburban Chicago telephone number, and a lot of people have it, so I'm not going to get rid of it. Well, you can't make it any easier than that. Uh, you got the phone number. You've got Les at lesdeckconsulting.com. Uh, visit the website. Send him an email. Uh, call him if you are so inclined. And, um, hey, Les, it was just really great having you in the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Leo. Nice to be with you. Thank you for joining us. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how you can engage Peernovation for your organization, contact us on the website at peernovation.co. Till next week, remember, the power of we begins with you.